Greetings, dear listeners. Uh, this is Jonah Goldberg. This is The Remnant, and we're back again. I have sitting here uh, Michael Pratt, who's still my sort of on-the-scene podcast producer, and I should have mentioned last time uh, that he's got his own podcast. Um, what is, it's like uh, furryfetish.com <laughs> thing? Is that, oh, that's that's your <laughs> website. That's, that's I'm the sorry. website, yeah. Okay. yeah it's, uh, it's filler words. I do it with Beverly Hallberg from District Media Group. So we talk about communications, which is to say we talk about, you know, nothing. So. Hence, hence the title, filler hence words. the title, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. um, and uh, you you didn't you weren't a communications major, were you? No, I actually studied philosophy, so I studied something of substance, and then quickly went over to the dark side. Yeah, I, I to this day don't quite understand communications major. Every communication, I mean, I've met some very smart people who were communications right. majors. I just could never figure out why they were communications majors. Well, um, it, it reminds me of when I was in college trying to decide whether or not I wanted to study politics. Uh, and like, if you want to study political philosophy, that's great, but you don't really need to study politics per se right <laughs> unless you want to get a phd in political science yes right right makes sense but even right. then you don't need to major it in college this is something my dad always used to talk about my dad for those who don't know um was a editor and media guy for a very long time he worked um he ran a bunch of different news syndicates and feature syndicates uh he uh his syndicate was the guys behind garfield and peanuts and all that kind of stuff and he's got some interesting charles schultz stories or had some but um, at one point or another, for years, my dad probably had 2,000 writers, wow. not necessarily employed for him, but working, writing for him. And, and he hired journalists for 40 years, and he always thought um, journalism school in particular was a racket, mm-hmm. right? It's sort of like a guild where um, – and now the problem is because like Columbia Journalism School has been so successful in getting – its graduates working in the industry, they have a vested interest. The people working in the industry have a vested interest in protecting right. the the value of their their you know the the Meister's seal from yeah. you know uh, Game of Thrones or something, and so they tend to hire Columbia journalism. So it becomes this sort of self fulfilling thing where what they actually teach you isn't that good, but it's sort of a license to get a job once you get out. And uh, but my dad always used to say, you know, why would I? S- you know, why would I hire someone who needed to go to school to understand how to write a lead or right. um, organize a sentence? And, you know, it's like if, I, if I'm sending someone to Russia to report on Russia, I would much rather someone who, I don't know, studied Russian <laughs> or Russian history, right, or, or even <laughs> economics. I mean, someone right. who knows something and, you know, you, you hire smart and you teach the skill. And um, if you can't learn the nuts and bolts of what journalism is in – a couple weeks on the job, um, then you probably shouldn't be in journalism anyway. I remember my dad once told me he was at a the American Society newspaper editors meeting, which used to be a big deal here in D.C., and they had a panel about diversity in the media. And I, I should probably qualify that to say they probably had 10,000 panels on diversity in the media, but <laughs> he was at one, and there was a young African-American woman who was talking about the troubles that minorities have in, in the media. And she said, I couldn't believe it when I, after I got out of journalism school, I went around on these interviews and people asked me for clips, you know, and for those who don't know, clips are like writing samples of stuff that you've written. And she was like, nobody in school told me that I should have clips. I was like, how do you spend a year in graduate school studying <laughs> journalism and, not, and that not come up in a conversation, you know? Um, but, uh, well, Jenna, you're a, you're a syndicated columnist, right? For National Review. How did, what, how did you start in that, I, I, we don't need to do the whole origin story, but like, yeah, no, I mean, well, it, it was weird because my dad ran newspaper syndicate, ran a newspaper yeah. syndicate, and when I um, um, I had been at National Review for a couple years. I was writing fairly semi regularly in the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. and I was doing NRO, and I uh, heard from what we used to be called the Tribune Syndicate asking me if I wanted to have a syndicated column. And I also heard at the same time from Creators Syndicate if they want to have if, if I wanted to do a column, and I was in a very fortunate place where I got him in a little bit of a bidding war, and I also had as a consultant my dad who had you know done a million of these things, and I remember him telling me uh, the problem with creators is uh, they're very they're they're a very good syndicate, they're very aggressive, um, but they're almost entirely conservative, and he was like, you don't want salesmen. 
um, who can't try to uh, who can't bid against their own products, right? right? And so if they've already got their clients in a bunch of news, they got their their writers in a bunch of newspapers. They're not going to fight for you to take someone else's spot who's paying them already. And um, and also creators has this famous golden handcuff stuff that you basically can never quit. And meanwhile, Tribune had very few conservatives there, and he was like, it's always better to be the one conservative they've got to sell. Right? Yeah. You know, if, if, if you're a salesman, you want to be able – and an editor says, well, what we really need is a young conservative. You want to have something, and if you only have one guy, basically, which was me, um, it was a good thing to have. Um, but the syndicated column business is garbage now. <laughs> uh, you yeah. know, and it's not anyone's fault. Um, Tribune is now called Tronk, which sounds like some weird – onomatopoeia for you know, it, it sounds like a communications firm <laughs> yeah no it's terrible it's just the most terrible name and um it sounds like the sound of what a a certain weird failed muppet character would make when you squeezed his nose drunk drunk and um so uh anyway and it's but it's not their fault it's just that it used to be when you had 500 or a thousand newspapers in the country and you had multiple papers in each market, there was a competitive pressure to, to yeah. bid prices up. And now uh, the thing that's killed the, the syndicated column business as a lucrative thing is um, uh, the decline of the two-newspaper town. So it used to be a salesman would go in and say, hey, do you want George Will? And we'd love to have George Will. And they'd say, okay, that would be 100 bucks a month or 100 bucks a week. And they say, well, that's a little pricey for me. So, okay, I'll go across the street and sell it there. Now... You go in, salesman goes in and says, you want George Will? And so we'd love George Will. And the, they'll say, okay, it's 100 bucks a week. And the editor will say, I'll give you five. <laughs> and they're like, Oof. why not? You know, right, I mean, it's either right. take the five or take nothing. Right. And, um, and the internet makes it, it just has commodified opinion journalism to the extent that if you really love Tom Sowell's column or you love my column or anybody's column, um, you can find it on the web wherever you are in the country. It used to be a real value add to be able to bring copy – that appeared in, say, the San Francisco Chronicle into the Buffalo Times Dispatch. The internet has taken out all those middlemen, yeah, and just it's reduced the the value. So I would make far more money writing for magazines every now and then than uh, what I make from the syndicated column. Um, but I do it anyway because I'm a masochist. Yeah. So, anyway, so we want to do uh, something different this week. Uh, um, first of all, we want to get me to stop saying um and uh. Uh, I got my assistant, Jack Butler, here, and I've given him a cattle prod, and he's going to try and uh, get me to stop doing it. Yeah, and he's letting me talk this time. Not much, though. <laughs> and um, and uh, so we're going to go through, because we value, I told, I keep inviting feedback from people. So uh, Michael's going to read from the comments. Where are these comments from? These are from the iTunes review section. Okay. So we have, Very important place, yeah, right? Yeah, very, very important place. So... Um, uh, do you want to go through some miscellaneous, com- miscellaneous comments first or sound effect suggestions or music suggestions first? Uh, miscellaneous comments for 500, please. Okay. All right. Uh, they asked if we could have Ben Sass on as a weekly guest. Well, as luck would have it, we have Ben Sass on today. Uh, I should be clear. Yesterday, I got back from San Francisco. or should, well, San Francisco Airport. I was up in Menlo Park uh, speaking to the conservative forum of Silicon Valley. And uh, I came back mid-afternoon and I raced here. I think I took out a couple people on the way trying to get here. <laughs> and uh, and so we did, the, we did the conversation by phone yesterday afternoon. And I think it was fine. It's better when he's here in person. But for people who don't know, Ben is going to be, or Senator Sass, mm-hmm. uh, is going to, in part because I poisoned him with iocane powder, and he has to come get the antidote from me fairly regularly. Uh, he will be a regular guest on the show. Uh, we really wanted to do one, uh, sort of co-host one together, but uh, because of Senate ethics rules and the fact that he's a frickin' senator, uh, that made it logistically complicated from all sorts of ways. So he's going to be a regular on here. He's going to be, not Ed McMahon, but sort of, uh, I don't know, who's a who's a... Who's one of the regulars on, like, Letterman? He's my Terry Gar, maybe, yeah. something like that. Or, like, Jonah Goldberg on Special Report. Right? Something like, like that. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So it's good. We're listening. To, we're responding to the audience feedback already. Uh, people can't get enough of your maniacal giggle, <laughs> <laughs> which there it is. And it's, a, it's been compared to a Scooby-Doo laugh and also to a dolphin. Yes. So I don't like the dolphin thing. But the Scooby-Doo laugh, 
so here's the thing. I yeah. used to have a real Scooby-Doo laugh, yeah. right? And I have this mellifluous voice, right? Um, and I've always had a deep voice, and I've always had a problem not projecting my voice. And so, like, in school, I would always get busted when people were mm-hmm. – because I couldn't whisper properly. And uh, <laughs> it was a great handicap. But I used to have a really terrible Scooby-Doo <laughs> kind of voice, yeah. laugh. And I spent years working on it, and my giggle is – the closest I've gotten to fixing it. Well, actually, I think what we'll do is we'll look at the sonic, the audio waveform, and uh-huh. compare it to those two other laughs, and you can, you know, see which one it actually. All right, you do. That seems like a fantastic <laughs> use of your time. Yes. <laughs> um, there were some shots fired at Podhoritz. Uh They said that they he kept he keeps interrupting you on Glop, so they were glad that you got your own. Yeah, your own podcast finally. I've been chased out of Glop, so <laughs> I'm still doing Glop. We're going to do one Monday, but. Uh, uh, John is very, I love John. John's one of my favorite people, but, uh, yeah, he has, uh, uh he has issues with, um, letting people finish their sentences. <laughs> uh, then we have two, I'll keep listening comments. Uh, I'll keep listening as long as the cod piece stays. So what's the, what's the update on the cod piece? Uh, you, hey, <laughs> you tell me, how do you think? How does it look? <laughs> I could tell you guys it looks fantastic. And then the other was that they really hope that the remnant is like the G string. I think they meant the G file, but maybe they meant the G string. I'm not sure. I have, I have no okay. comment. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's move to some sound effects. Um, th- some folks suggested clips from Ben-Hur. What do you think about that? What, what would be a line from Ben-Hur? I'm doing, what would be a, I mean, like chariots? Chariot, yeah, that's what I'd. I'd I, I, okay, that's yeah, interesting. Yeah, so yeah, that's good. All right. A, a LIGO chirp. Which one's a LIGO chirp? An LIGO chirp. I don't know what that means. Oh, isn't it? It's from, uh, it's from one of the, um, isn't it? It's a Star Trek thing. LIGO. Isn't it? Star Trek? Or Star Wars? Trek? I am not familiar with any either yeah. of these things, and I'm pretty nerdy, I would say. I, I can I can confirm that. Yeah, All right, Jack okay. is pretty nerdy. Uh, Woody the woodpecker li- uh, laugh. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So that was, that's one. Obi Wan Kenobi turning off the the tractor beam on the Death Star. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's we could we could try that. Could I, try bet, that. I bet I yeah. bet we can find that. Boo, boo. Something like that. Uh, th- and then this one was uh, this one I actually thought was really good. They suggested doing a different um, spaceship noise each week from oh, sundry things, cool. and then have people guess. That's not and bad like at all. identify yeah. what's what spaceship it is that we're. We could also do from the 1980s uh, Star Wars action figure commercial where they had the uh, <laughs> the abominable snow beast on Hoth. What Jack? What was that thing's name? Uh, oh my god! I thought I was nerdy. Yeah, you're fired. Substandard could uh, answer that in a, in a flash. But anyway, the kid taking the uh, the abominable snowman beast from Planet Hoth uh, used to say Mar Wampa. <laughs> and we used to say that all the time in in high school because we were so cool. Yeah. Well, that we—I'm sure we could find that actually. Oh, I, I know it exists. It's on YouTube. Yeah. yeah. So, um, let's see—is there anything else? Uh, a Wil- the Wilhelm scream. I don't even really know what that is. Oh, that's in uh, in in almost every Spielberg and Lucas movie. They would have this random scream. I'm not going to try to imitate it, uh, but anytime it's just in one scene when one character dies, just usually a side character. It's. It's there. It's okay. and it beca- it's became a thing from them doing it, and it pops sort of, up every once in a while. That's sort of like in James Brooks's uh, sitcoms, like in Taxi. Yeah, he has his laugh on the laugh track, and it's, ah, and it sounds it's really noticeable. <laughs> and then uh, finally, uh, the clip from the Warriors, where the bad guy has a bottle on each finger, clanking together, and calls out, "Warriors, Warriors yeah. come out to play!" Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that'd be good. Yeah, that actor. He was also in a admittedly bad, but it was, I loved it at the time, movie called Dreamscape. Um, and he's been a bunch of other things. I'm trying to remember. Anyway, that's not important right now. No other comments, concerns? No, people like it. The, okay. Yeah, I'm not sure that people like me on it, but that's okay. Yeah, that's, so, that's fine. Yeah. And who knows how long you're going to Yeah, Yeah, I expect <laughs> my pink slip <laughs> later today. So. I'm waiting in the wings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you got to stop putting those roller skates on the top of the stairs uh, for, for Michael. Okay, so what are we talking about now? I mean, we're gonna get we're gonna get to the the talk with Ben Sass in a bit. Um, well, what, so I noticed you on Twitter this week talking a lot about whataboutism, and there uh-huh. have been lots of pieces, you know, 
written all over about you know Harvey Weinstein and other and other folks and how it seems to be a common response to try to justify or defend behavior. And I guess I what's the difference between whataboutism and calling out hypocrisy? Okay, well they're very closely linked, right? Yeah. So uh, quick history lesson: uh, the term whataboutism. Um, actually comes from veterans of the CIA during the Cold War, where uh, it was a, to describe the the sort of rhetorical propaganda techniques of the Soviet Union, where anytime an American official or public figure criticized the Soviets and their actions in wherever, in Eastern Europe, in Afghanistan, it doesn't matter, um, or, or pointed out that life in the Soviet Union was bad, uh, the, the quickest response always from the Soviets was, yes, and they hang Negroes in the American South, right? Mm-hmm. To say, like, everyone's got their problems, right? right? And uh, which is one of the reasons why the civil rights movement was very important. Um, I mean, other than the sort of core moral issues, uh, it was also sort of vital as a matter of foreign policy because it was a propaganda yeah. problem for the United States and deservedly so. But today, sort of, people use whataboutism to, or I use whataboutism to describe how and there's certainly a lot of it on the left, to be sure. This is a common problem in the culture. Uh, but what drives me crazy is the the tendency, particularly on Twitter, because Twitter is where bad things happen. Um, to if you if you criticize Donald Trump, the immediate thing is to say, oh yeah, well, what about you know Bill Clinton or Barack Obama? It's very closely related these days to the anti anti Trump position on the right, where you say uh, you don't want to actually. So Donald Trump does something bad, right? right? And a lot of conservatives don't want to criticize, at least in public, uh, according to the Corker rule, uh, don't want to d- criticize Donald Trump publicly. And so what they do is they instead criticize his critics, mm-hmm. right? And so oh. Look, the New York Times cares that Donald Trump's, you know, about when Donald Trump does this, but they didn't care when Barack Obama did this, right? And and so they want to point out the hypocrisy or the inconsistency of the New York Times, right? I think that's fine. Yeah. What bothers me is when that's all you do, right? It's a necessary but not sufficient mm-hmm. thing to say. Mm-hmm. If all you do is say the New York Times is inconsistent or hypocritical for criticizing Donald Trump when they didn't criticize Barack Obama or Bill Clinton for doing the same thing, that's fine. But if you criticized Barack Obama right. or, or Bill Clinton for doing this and you're not criticizing Donald Trump, what you're basically doing is using the hypocrisy of liberal critics to, to protect yourself from actually having to admit your own hypocrisy for not criticizing something that you criticized for other people to do. And in the case of Harvey Weinstein, uh, what's so galling about this whole thing is... You know, people want people. People want to say, you know, you're like I got. I, so I criticize Harvey Weinstein because I think he should go to jail. Because I think he, if, if it's true that he raped right. people, he right. should go to jail. I, I'm old fashioned that way. <laughs> and um, and people say, well, you know, well, what about you know Donald Trump? Well, first of all, if I think honestly, if I think Donald Trump raped somebody, he should go to jail. But so what about Roger Ailes? Ditto. Right. I mean. Right. I, I don't care whether you have an R or a D after your name, right? I mean, rape is bad, right? right. Uh, sexual harassment is bad. Sexual assault is bad. And and so the problem becomes, it becomes like a snipe hunt for inconsistency or hypocrisy. And if I was hypocritically or inconsistently not harsh enough on Roger Ailes for the allegations that came out of him, about him, many of which were like 20 years old, shame on me. But that doesn't change that Harvey right. Weinstein is a pig and should go to jail, right? And... Um, and I, I've been very tough on Donald Trump about his, you know, access Hollywood stuff and yeah. all of that. But I think it gets to the larger problem in the culture where we have this, you know, as Jack can attest, um, I've spent a lot of the last couple of years reading up on romanticism and much to my editor's chagrin. <laughs> and um, uh, we live in a romantic time where we want to have – where the most important thing is to be authentic to your true self, right? And uh, personal authenticity is valued um, and consistency – is valued more than inconsistent morality, right? So, like, people would rather, you know, the heroes in the popular culture are all of these, you know, bad boys, but they have their own personal code. It doesn't matter if their code is evil, as long as they're consistent with it, right? And 
people hate scolds and people hate people who are judgmental in our culture. And so the upshot ultimately is, is that like, if you say gluttony is bad, but you're fat, then you have no right to say that gluttony is bad, right? And so it'd be better to be a consistent glutton and say, gluttony is good if you are a glutton, right? You have to own your sins. And uh, there's a famous... I have, I have a food addiction problem. Right? That's right. So, yeah. And, you know, or, you know, you, you can't, you can't fall short of an, if you fall short of an ideal but still preach the ideal that's the worst sin here right and and our culture is full of this crap you know there was this great uh what's his name scheller he was a jewish ethicist um who had a robust sex life on the side apparently yeah and he was once accused of being a hypocrite and he said um you know the sign po- pointing to boston doesn't have to go there right and uh, we can we can know what's right and still fall short of the ideal as human beings because that's what you know human beings are fall short of ideals that's why we call they're human beings and not angels and and so i by all means point out people's hypocrisy i make a living you know that as a pundit where you have to do some of that kind of stuff and and certainly point out people's inconsistencies but that's not the big story, right? If Barack Obama or Donald Trump does something crazy or bad, um, the inconsistency of the New York Times and how they cover that is interesting. As a journalistic story, it's interesting. As a matter of partisan politics, it's useful to know. But the issue at heart is still what Donald Trump does, what the president of the United States does. And whataboutism is often valuable, but it is, is, is rarely sufficient in terms of the actual conversation at hand. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. It reminds me of what you were talking with Yuval last week, too, about the importance of institutions um, and <laughs> the way that the public trust kind of erodes in them when there is hypocritical behavior. And right. So but that's uh, I guess that's one reason why um, men love dogs. <laughs> <laughs> dogs are not they, hypocrites. They, they don't. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> my, my dogs are very. See, that's that's one of the comments I thought you were going to get to is that I hear this from a lot of people is they want more dog stuff. Yeah. And Jack and I are working on getting some dog people in here. And some actual dogs, maybe. Well, that's the problem. How do you do it? I mean, I'm open to suggestions from listeners. If you know a way to incorporate dogs more in an audio-only podcast, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm game to hear it. You um, need to get those uh, dog translator devices from Up and affix them to a dog. That would be great. Although I, I, I really worry what how foul-mouthed my dingo would be. <laughs> um, I mean, she is a white trash swamp dog. But um, can, can people buy the Kickstarter stuffed animal still of of your dingo? Yes. I don't know. It's um, rescuepets.com. Do you remember what the name of that is? I, I don't offhand. Yeah. We should yeah. include that link in the description maybe. Yeah, well, yeah sure. It. But, you know, other than doing imitations of my dingo's uh, vocalizations – I don't know how to get more dog content in here, but I'm I'm, I'm eager to. I mean, I could tell more. I could do more canine updates, uh, but that just seems a little strange. Uh, for those of you who don't know, or you're new to you're listening to the podcast, but you're not uh, a regular reader of the Goldberg file, um, I do. Um, I write about my dogs a lot. Uh, for those again, this is for newcomers to all of this. I have two dogs. I have a, what is called a Carolina dog named Zoe. And she was a rescue um, when we got her uh, from a rescue place in South Carolina. And when we got her, she had Parvo. We also thought that she was a uh, German Shepherd mix when we got her. And uh, Parvo is this terrible disease where you basically are crapping out your, the linings of your intestines, and it's very bad. And a lot of dogs die from it if, when they get it. And so we got this, like, $35 you know, dog that cost me thousands of dollars in intensive care before we could even bond with it. And I mentioned it, and all these readers were like, we don't need to hear how she doing. Is she alive? Is she okay? And all this kind of stuff. And then when she got better, um, people were like, well, we still want to hear about your dog. So I started doing canine up, uh, updates about the dingo. Um, the reason I call her the dingo is that the Carolina dog is actually a recognized breed by the AKC, which I did not know until I got one. And there's a theory about them. Uh, there's this dog, bi- you know, biologist guy who is responsible for rehabilitating the breed or introducing the breed. Uh, New York Times did an interesting profile on him about five years ago. 
Anyway, the theory is is that these dogs came over the land bridge into the United States with the first Native Americans like 9,000 years ago. Yeah. And made it all the way down to South Carolina. And then for quirky, weird reasons, the population of these Indian dogs remained stable because humans didn't go into these swamps in Georgia and South Carolina. And now, uh, so she's not like a dingo. In a, she looks like a dingo, you know. I mean, that's one of the reasons why they call them the American dingo. Although it's, you know, distinct breed from the real dingoes of Australia. But she's just a wild dog, yeah. you know. And um, it's taken a long time to get her to be normal. And the the reason for it is is that even if she's got other stuff in her, right, I mean, Carolina dogs missed about 200 years of that European canine eugenics that yeah. created all these breeds, right? Most of the breeds that we have today are um, a fairly recent vintage, right? They were basically created in Europe um, in the 18th and 19th centuries. And, uh, and it's very interesting. There was a huge amount of overlap between the eugenics movement among progressives and dog breeding. And this guy, Francis Galton, sort of went back and forth between both, but we don't need to get into that. But anyway, she's just this wild dog. And um, when we got her, she was a puppy and she was sick from parvo, so she wasn't all that wild. And then as she got healthy and got bigger, <laughs> she, you know, she'll... She got the zoomies. She got the zoomies. But it's not just the zoomies. It's, um, you know, when I brought her to Hillsdale, Jack in the test, he, I taught this class at Hillsdale. And, uh, you know, we get to this. They, Hillsdale now apparently has nice housing for visiting professor types or instructor <laughs> types. But when I, li- when I visited there, it was a um, basically the Charles Manson bungalow. And uh, it was it was hideous. And there was this basement down below where it really looked like. It was set up because no one could hear you scream down there. And anyway, so I, uh, I brought my, my, my wife was like, you're not leaving for two weeks and leaving me with this wild dog. So you got to bring it to Michigan. So I brought it to Michigan, which the dingo was delighted with. And we get into this cabin and I let her go run into the backyard of this Charles Manson bungalow. And it had ju- the snow had just melted there. And she makes a beeline for a rabbit a dead rabbit of indeterminate vintage and grabs it and it clearly had been preserved in the snow. And I'm horrified already. It's a dead animal. It's missing one eye, but otherwise it's like intact. And she starts stripping the fur off like fruit wraps, right? And like gar- gargling them back into her mouth. I'm like, this is delicious. I didn't, who knew there was a buffet in the backyard? And I'm like, oh, my God. And I, so I got to wrestle this dead rabbit out of my dingo's mouth. And then, so every morning, because we were used to Cosmo the Wonder Dog, who's the dog in the party hat um, in my Twitter avatar. And uh, he was the greatest dog who ever lived. He learned all of his tricks in a week. Um, you could walk him through a busy city um, in Adams Morgan and just tell him to stop. And he would stop. He would cross streets only on the light. I mean, he was just a fantastic dog. And um, the dingo, less like that. And so every morning before the kids would get on campus, I would walk the dingo, um, Zoe, on the quad in the campus. And uh, very disturbingly, she had a huge problem with the Reagan statue. <laughs> bark at the Reagan Ooh. statue all the time, which made me think, uh-oh, I've got a yellow dog Democrat as a dog. <laughs> but, um, there are no yellow dogs left anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the last one. But anyway, so, you know, it's a morning I'm listening to NPR or whatever on my phone and walking around and Zoe goes into some bushes and she's off leash and I think they're called a bevy or whatever it is. A a gazillion rabbits explode from inside (laughs) this bush and she just takes off after one and she's gone. I mean, just like gone. Like, like you don't have kids, right? No. Yeah. So like there's this feeling you get. Anybody out there who's had a kid, when your kid is, like, missing in a department mm-hmm. store and the panic that sets in is geometric, right? Every minute they're gone feels like another year they're gone, right? Yep. So, like, after 15 minutes, I'm just convinced my dog is gone, right? And their kids are starting to go to class, whatever. So I'm walking back to the administrative building to report, to ask, what do I do about a missing dog? I got to call my wife and tell her I've lost the dog. And there's the dingo in the middle of the quad, very proudly with this giant rabbit in its mouth, (laughs) showing it off. And as these kids come out of the student center, you know, my dog looks like a rancher would shoot it on sight. It looks like a wild dog. And um, all they see is this wild dog with a rabbit in its mouth. 
and she's like running up to these girls going, look at this cool rabbit I found, and they're screaming. <laughs> so I had to chase the dingo back to the Charles Manson bungalow, and I could not get the rabbit from her, but I convinced her that she needed to bury it. And so she buried it in the backyard, and then I would never let her re- exhume yeah. it. And then so the other dog we got, I won't go into all the details about her, but she's Pippa. There are a lot of people on Twitter who are on Team Pippa, Team Pippa, and there are other people on Twitter who are on Team Zoe. Pippa was my mother-in-law's who died last year, English Springer Spaniel. She's well-bred for English Springer Spaniel, which means she's as crazy as any other mm-hmm. English Springer Spaniel. And um, when my mother-in-law couldn't take care of her anymore, we brought her home. We took her over. For the first six weeks of the introduction of the Spaniel, the dingo just wanted to kill her. Yeah. And not, not hurt. Right. Not, not bully. Tear out its throat and kill her. And it was an extremely stressful part of my life. And now they're great friends. I post videos of them all the time on Twitter. But Pippa is sort of like the uh, overbred, dumbest girl from Downton Abbey, right? She's like this aristocratic kind of thing. And Zoe's like Daryl from The Walking Dead. He's this white, she's this white trash dog. And so they're a very strange duo. And I think you can make a great like 1970s style crime fighting show called, you know, Pippa and the Dingo. But um, anyway, so those are my dogs. Now everybody knows. I can't do this every week where I just talk about the origin stories of my dogs, but I figured listeners should know. Can I tell a dog story? We'll we'll see. So so my wife and I rescued a dog uh, about three years ago, um, and we were told he was a hound mix. In fact, he's mostly husky. We did the the, Uh. the genetic test. Uh, He also has had run-ins with rabbits. And uh, we were walking back into our apartment building, and a dumb rabbit decided to run right across the entryway to our building. And I've never seen Harper move quite as fast as he did. Uh, caught the rabbit. I under- then understood why squeaky toys squeak. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I was able to convince him to let it go before he finished it off. Yeah. But uh, the, he sniffed those bushes for a the long time. The rabbit survived. The rabbit survived. That's shocking. Yeah. I they're, was... they're, I've learned the hard way. Their necks snap really <laughs> easily. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I think I caught a mid-shake. So when Zoe would catch a mouse or a vole or a chipmunk when she was younger, it's a little easier to get them from her now. Her go-to tactic was either to try to bury it, which yeah. she, she does more now, but she would also just swallow it whole. Oh, my God. Head to tail, and it's just like horrifying, you know. And takes down the whole thing, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, what's it going to look like on the other end?" And but it's just, you know, now she's calming down a bit. Uh, She killed a squirrel the other day, and she got really. She's so mad at you when you don't let her bring it home or bring it into the car. Yeah, Um, and she pouts. But and Pippa has no interest in killing anything. She likes to flush things out of bushes, right? Particularly tennis balls, but that's about it. Yeah. All right, so I guess we covered a lot, right? We've been on for a little bit here. Yeah. And um, so please keep the comments coming. Please keep the feedback coming from listeners. We're going to go to Ben Sass in a second. Remember, we recorded this actually yesterday. We're still working on some of the audio issues. Apparently, you know, AI, which has this gleaming James Bond villain kind of headquarters here in Washington, D.C., has yet to figure out how to do the phone line, dedicated phone line thing for the podcast studio, but we're going to get that fixed. Um, or I'll just keep beating Jack. Um, I can take it. Yeah. The problem is no one cares if I beat Jack, so it doesn't really matter. Um, My parents care. Yeah, but I'll get it. With, if they want to put in the phone line, maybe that'll solve it. But like Arthur Brooks, you know, I, I keep telling him, look, I'm going to keep beating Jack until we get this phone line thing. And he keeps asking who I am. Yeah, and he's like, who's Jack? And he's like, that sounds dirty, you know, beating, beating Jack. Anyway, so... Um, uh, so we have right, so no other do we have any other action items that we need to get to? No, people are excited. They they said it's too short. So okay, well, we're it's clearly not, not too short. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, and uh, we're going to try and do them at least once a week. Uh, we should say that there is going to be advertising fairly soon. Um, I've been in talks with uh, um, the magazine Jugs, and they're very <laughs> interested. Uh, um, no, uh, but we are going to do some advertising. And um, how does that work in audio format? Jugs, yeah. Uh, 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 a lot of motorboat sounds. I, I don't know. Um, Is Jugs even a magazine anymore? I don't know. I just I, so for those who are offended by this, you probably shouldn't listen to this podcast. But um, my favorite thing about Jugs, other than I mean the the magazine, um, is in Raising Arizona. There's a scene where uh, Nick Cage goes into like the Seven Eleven or whatever uh, 
um, I can't remember if he's going to rob it or if he's getting uh, diapers or whatever it is, but there's this great scene. I think he's going to rob it. Anyway, there's a great scene where the, the pimple-faced kid behind the cash register is reading jugs. And the corner fold sort of uh, uh, tagline on the top of it is, tits times two. (laughs) 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 Just always thought that was hilarious. Um, What other number would they be multiplied by? Well, in uh, a total recall number, there's... Yeah, the, 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 the... I can't say tripod because listeners know what that means. But um, uh, but there's the yeah, there's that. All right, so uh, I'm still getting a hang out of this. The I apologize if the audio sounds weird. We were both on a phone, and um, and thanks for tuning in. It's still a work in progress, as you can tell. Appreciate it. Hey Ben, how you doing? <laughs> doing well. I mean, I'm uh, in Nebraska, and I didn't land at the wrong airport. So unlike you, logistics are simple. Yeah, uh, it was uh, for for listeners who don't know. I um, just came back moments ago from San Francisco, and if I sound like someone uh, hammered a three penny nail into my frontal lobe with a tack hammer, it's because not only was I on a plane for four or five hours, but I watched the latest Fast and Furious movie, and I could feel my IQ points just sort of sizzle off like water off of a frying pan as I was watching it. So if I have problems with basic sentence structure or adding small columns of single-digit numbers, that's why. I don't want to shame you, but like when I do sit next to people like you in the middle of the workday watching not just a movie but a dumb movie, I'm not looking down on you, but I'm just thinking my grandpa would be like, what the heck is wrong with you? It's the middle of the day and you're watching Fast and Furious. You know, that, 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 that cuts so close to the core. That cuts so deep to me for a guy whose favorite football team, um, the N on the helmet, stands for knowledge. But um, anyway, uh, uh, no, look, I had, a, I had a long couple days in California. I worked really hard and I needed to turn off my brain. And... Um, and Twitter uh, wasn't sufficient for it because there's so much stupidity out there. On, out there. Uh, speaking of stupidity, how about that Republican Party? Is there such a thing? <laughs> I don't know that the Republican Party actually exists. I think only in Washington, D.C. do people pretend that there's such a thing as a Republican Party. I don't know. I, I, think, I think there are three political parties in America right now, and they're all really, really unimpressive and undesirable. I think the... The Dems have uh, been swallowed by kind of progressive nutties that don't necessarily have any theory of how to talk to real people and real families and real places working real jobs. And the Republican Party has a civil war where we're going to split between a a, a K Street branch that has no grassroots and a Bannonite majoritarian populist branch that wants to burn everything down. And it's not clear to me how that marriage lasts. Yeah, so I, I actually, I mean, I agree with you that there's certainly not a single unified Republican Party. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we can't have nice things. But it does seem to me that two may not be a sufficiently large number because you've got, this is the thing that I think Bannon is stealing so many bases in his shtick. Um, uh, you know, we saw uh, way back on the first episode of this podcast when you were on, we talked briefly about Roy Moore, and people forget, yeah, he endorsed Roy Moore, but that whole sort of Bannon wing of conservatism was really for Mo Brooks, who got destroyed in the primary. And Bannon wants to claim that Donald Trump and the populists, rep- that Donald Trump ran on this populist nationalist agenda, and that everybody who voted for him voted for that. And every time Bannon has tried to primary somebody, with the exception, I think, of Roy Moore, right? In 2016, he went after Paul Ryan, and his guy lost by, like, what, 75,000 points? Bannon wants to convince the mainstream media that there is only two Republican parties. I think there are at least three. There's one, there's this tiny, fairly tiny rump of committed nationalist, sort of nativist Bannonites who actually believe that stuff. And then there's a much larger group of really pissed off who just see politics as entertainment and are pissed off at the establishment and are basically the anti-establishment party. And um, they went for Roy Moore instead of Mo Brooks and instead of Luther Strange because Roy Moore was the best way to leave a burning bag of dog crap on the front steps of Washington and ring the doorbell and run away. 
And then there's this sort of K Street establishment thing that you're talking about. And then you could say there's the fourth, which is sort of the, 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 the dear remnant of right thinking people out there who are like real conservatives. Um, but anyway, that's how I would put it. Yeah, so I'll agree with you that you need lots more sub-segments, that my three is not the right way to think about it. Just those three seem to be the ones that suck up most of the oxygen at the present moment. But I hear you that yeah. Bannon's coalition is not something that he's necessarily leading. It's something that he's running in front of a desire of people to scream, burn it all down, because I don't like the other two. I don't like the leftist progressives that the Democratic Party's become, and I don't want uh, a, a sort of K-street-centric Republican Party. When I, when I ran... Uh, two and a half years ago, um, I honestly thought that 45% of America believed what I believed, which is sort of Tocquevillian, localist, principled, pluralist, market-oriented, decentralized stuff. There's a limited number of stuff that things the federal government should do, and the vast majority of stuff should be handled by the private sector. I know, bless your heart, because I thought it was 45%, and by leadership, we could get it to 50 or 55 or 60%. And now I worry that it might be like 7%, not 45% of America. And so I, I want to... I want to be a part of something that's interesting and worth passing on to your kids and grandkids. But I think the top line of those three are three bad things. And right now they can suck up uh, most of the oxygen. But, but I'm, I'm with you. Bannon isn't necessarily really in front of the parade of all the people who just want to pull the lever. Stop on this train. I don't like where we're headed. Yeah. And, you know, it's just funny. I was, for dorky reasons, going back and reading old issues of National Review and how and the sort of in the the. George Nash book on the conservative intellectual movement was sort of one of those Bibles for me. And, you know, it's funny, this debate about populists versus sort of elite intellectuals, if you want to put it that way. I mean, sometimes the late, the, the jerseys change depending upon the dynamic, but this populist versus um, sort of ideological argument goes way, way back. I mean, um, I was reading Goldwater didn't, you know, warning, conservatives don't get fooled by Wallace, you know? And before that, there were people like Will Herberg and to a certain extent, Russell Kirk, who, and, and, and Whitaker Chambers, who had sharp disagreements with Bill Buckley and the older Brent Brozell, not the guy from the Media Research Center now, his dad, um, because McCarthy really was, it was less to do with anti-communism and more to do with a sort of this split between the populace and the and for want of a better term, because a lot of these guys were very smart on both sides of the argument, of sort of the the the, the sort of patriarchal adults, right? And um, it just seems to me that this has always been a tension within the conservative movement. The problem we have now is, I think, has to do with more with structural changes, where. It used to be that you got this healthy tension where the movement was reinvigorated by the populace, Richard Vigory and direct mail and Reagan and all of that, but they could work in tandem. And now it's gotten to the point where they just can't. And that's why we, you know, that's why, uh, you know, Rex Tillerson and Donald Trump are going to challenge each other to an IQ contest very shortly. Uh, or, or the first and third lady are going to have a, a press release off. I, I just came from a town hall and did it at middle school, and I had I had a seventh grade girl ask me, "Do you really think these people you work with in Washington D.C. should be role models for any of us adolescents in the room?" And the entire you know cafeteria-sized convocation of sixth through eighth graders starts laughing at the idea that the first and third ladies are screaming about who really qualifies as the title first wife. But I, I, I well, that may be because they heard about you talking about peeing in corn stalks, but that's a different issue. But anyway, go on. Yeah, your, your podcast is widely listened to, but not among the sixth to eighth grade girl population <laughs> of Nebraska middle schools. Um, I, but I, I, so I'll add to your st- <laughs> goals. Um, I'll add to your uh, sort of riff on the structural piece by saying one other thing that's clearly different about this moment is how non-local so many people are living. So there was a time when you have the tension between the more ideological part of the movement and the more populist impulsive part of the movement, but that was still always going to be sort of 
drug along slowly, but the vast majority of people just not wanting that much politics in their lives, federal politics, because they live locally. That's where their families are. That's where their friends are. That's where their jobs are. That's where their churches and synagogues are. And that's the rootedness of life. And people didn't want to consume all that much distant federal national media because it, about politics because politicians aren't that interesting. And I think right now we're having these two moments happening at once where we're seeing a hollowing out of the local, which has a lot to do with the shortening duration of jobs and therefore more mobility, rootlessness about where people are from. And so if you've got less friends and you've got less community and you, got le- you have less durability of where you're from, well, then the politicization of lots of national stuff sucks up more and more of our tension in the way that I've heard you talk about with, you know, if you lower the barrier between politics and entertainment, you're going to get worse versions of both. Right, right, right. So on the rank punditry side, what, you know, you know, up there when you guys are, you know, drinking out of your golden goblets in your luxurious red velvet rooms behind the scenes, what do you guys think is the deal? I mean, like, how does this Corker thing play out? How damaging do you think it is in, um, in Senate land? You know, I won't ask you if it's true that all the senators talk that way when it's off the record, but I'll just throw it out there rhetorically and see how you respond to it. <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, uh, after the Hannity episode uh, decrying the fake moon landing, uh, I heard that the next episode he was absolutely certain uh, that he has a source that tells him what's discussed at all of our lunches. I've evidently never been at, at many of the lunches he's talking about because what <laughs> actually happens at our lunch is such phony um, BS distant politician speak where you don't actually get down to the meat of what's wrong in the present moment. And so you, you go through this exercise of pretending there's a lot of unity in the room that people actually, or, or with the administration that people know not to be true. So the, this, the sort of um, breaking into pop culture is happening all over the place right now. I was in Dallas for a, yeah. a speech a couple of days ago, and uh, I saw two business guys running up to, to each other in the lobby of a hotel, apologizing to each, apologizing to the other for being late to their meeting. And they both immediately started in on quips about how sorry I was tardy. I was recording. I was uh, tech, I was drafting some tweets to attack Bob Corker. The president asked me to, and the other guy <laughs> responded, "Oh, well, that's funny because Corker has retained me to to." draft his tweets attacking the president right back. So we're definitely breaking into pop culture. Politicians are finally relevant. Um, I I think that it is, this stuff is very damaging and yet it's not, none of it's surprising. What's surprising is that we don't admit that there are two and three chess moves in this game. Obviously the president likes doing these kind of crazy tweets uh, to get attention and or to distract from a certain conversation. But what's strange is how many people will contact you from either the donor community around the country or from your home state where they say, can't we please hope that everybody will be pretend that the president didn't tweet what he tweeted yesterday or today because we're hoping legislative thing X or Y will happen or we're hoping that the tax reform thing can get done and can't we just pretend that none of this stuff happened? Well, the reality is the Republican Party, to, to do real tax reform, take 60 votes, as you know. So we're trying to do something right. that's very modest, not comprehensive reform. And you need 50 votes plus the vice president to do that. Well, if you need 50 of the 52 of us, we'd actually need to agree on a whole bunch of stuff. And there's probably almost nothing that more than 40 or 42 or 43 people agree on. And so you're trying to cobble together this coalition of 50. We're trying to coerce people to come along for reasons that they may not really buy into at the level of policy. And the the sort of lobbying community, both in a good and a bad sense. I mean, bad in the K Street sense are good in terms of average, you know, workaday Nebraskans who are trying to exercise their First Amendment rights to protest and redress of grievances by educating their elected officials. When people are wanting to lobby on that, they pretend that the Republican Party is a core identity that everybody agrees on. So the 52 of us mostly agree. And then there's been some little distraction that happened. That's not what it is. There's right. very, very little actual policy agreement. And so you're at 40 or 42 people and you're trying to cobble up to 50. Well, when one of the guys who's teetering on the fence is Bob Corker and the president decides to name him little Bob Corker and start attacking him and saying things that happened in their conversations that are probably kind of the opposite of what happened in their conversations. Um, it's much, much less likely that you're going to get legislation done. I'm for doing tax reform, but just objectively as an analytical matter, it gets less likely every time there's one of these public being contests and no, yeah. no corn. <laughs> that's, that's the problem. If there's only corn, let me switch gears for a second. Cause this is something that I, so I was out speaking to the, the conservative forum of Silicon Valley um, last night, which sounds like it's a room 
full of people with pocket protectors and, um, you know, uh, 1970s uh, retro Atari T-shirts. But it's actually a pretty pretty like kind of blue collar not blue i mean there's a lot of blue collar people there but it's also it's the people who lived in the silicon valley before it was called the silicon valley for the most part patriotic sort of sort of orange county types but of course you know at the other end of the state and um you know one lady gave me a copy of her book that she wrote for children about politics and it was very nice of her and she shined it she signed it for me and all that kind of stuff and the thing and i took it and i'm glad to have it but I was talking to a bunch of people about this. I don't tend to talk to my kid. I only have one kid, um, at least one that I'm taking credit for, um, about politics. I don't drag her into all of this stuff. I don't make her choose sides on political issues. And I probably, I probably bend too far the other way just to not um, politicize her life at all. I very rarely will, will show a picture, even an uh, obscured picture of her on the web because I know what jerks do to pictures of people's right. kids just ask david french right. but you know she's now she's getting older she asks a lot of questions and i always want to have interesting conversations with her and all that kind of stuff you got what like 35 40 kids something like that um yeah half, half that but yeah give or take <laughs> um or three uh, you know, but whatever a nebraska doesn't <laughs> <laughs> um uh, your job is even more political than my job how much do you actually talk about politics and try to move them one way or another on a way of seeing things about politics, or do you just think it's all downstream of values? Uh, I think it's mostly downstream of values, but we obviously have a strange life since I commute with them, right? So we live in Nebraska and go back and forth every week or almost every week. And I, uh, girl 16, girl 13, boy six, and uh, I take one of them with me a lot of weeks and we rotate who travels with me. So inevitably they see my work a day job. But no, I, mean, I don't think policy, as much as it's an important part of my day job, I don't think policy is nearly as important as all the much bigger things in life that are not just important in your local community, that, but that are roiling our politics right now. So, I mean, in the sense that we talk about it, it's not we're debating the $15 minimum wage, right? Like, I, I think the $15 minimum wage is a bad idea that harms poor people because there's objective data that shows when 89% of the folks earning it aren't the primary wage earner in their family you make 10 and $12 minimum wage illegal and you, you basically hurt poor people by having those jobs automate faster. So I, I care about that, but it's not good versus evil. It's prudent versus imprudent. And that kind of debate feels a lot like homework. So we wouldn't be spending a lot of time talking about that, but the upstream stuff from that about why our politics are so messed up at this moment. So inevitably the Colin Kaepernick, Donald Trump fight about the, you know, the take a knee NFL stuff. Like to me, that's political in the sense of we should have a shared civic understanding of what America means and why the way we conducted that debate was stupid on almost every side. So we talk about that, but because we're worried about our neighbors and the way that it's, you know, there's just identity politics everywhere right now. And I think that's disastrous for our actual neighbors. So we talk about that kind, but maybe not the policy legislative kind. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. Ever since our daughter was little and I've always sort of, you know, I wanted her to be a conservative because I want her because I mean, it's like my colleague Ramesh Panuru likes to say, of course, I think I have all of the right positions. If I thought I had one of the wrong ones, I'd change my mind. Right. So I'm not saying that I'm not open to correction, but I think conservatism is the right way to think about things. And I'm, you know, I've certainly been proven wrong quite a bit in the last couple of years about lots of things. And I've changed my mind about a lot of things. But as a general orientation, I think I have the right position and I therefore I want my daughter to have the right position. But, um, you know, like when Donald Trump was attacking me and all this kind of stuff, my daughter thought it was very strange. And, you know, I didn't know how to talk to my kid about it. And did he give you and, a nickname? I can't remember if he gave you a nickname. No, but, you know, I, I can't go anywhere with her where right wingers who know who I am are without them asking me. Um, hey, who bought those pants for you? Because uh, Donald Trump had said at one point to an interviewer that uh, I don't know how to wear, I don't know how to buy pants. And um, <laughs> I don't know what it means, but I'm going to bet he's probably right. Well, no, I have a team of interns here at the American Enterprise Institute still working on this two years later, trying to figure out what it means. Because the thing is, when I, I talk about this all the time when it comes up, you know, at speeches and stuff, because um, people will ask me, there'll be Q&A at like a business thing, and someone will ask me, did you buy those pants? And everyone else in the room is like, what? And so I get stuck having to explain it. And the thing is, look, first of all, if I went on a job interview, you know, they say, you know, you want to lead with your strengths and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, I'm not saying that if I went on like a job interview, I would open with my expert pants buying abilities, right? I mean, it's not, I wouldn't say like of all the people who know how to buy pants out there, I'm number one, but I know how to, right? I have the necessary knowledge to buy pants. It's not like my wife gets phone calls at the Home Depot from the Home Depot manager saying, hey, I'm sorry, Mrs. Goldberg, but uh, you know, your husband was in the power tool section trying to buy pants again. I mean, I know how to do it. And... It's this bizarre thing that's out there. And the only reason I bring it up is like, so like my, I have to explain to my kid that this guy, you know, the president of the United States, he has made fun of me and all that kind of stuff. And she knows I make fun of him. And, and I, but I, at the same time, I don't want her thinking in this sort of us versus them tribal, he's bad, I'm good kind of way. Cause I don't see Trump those terms. And I certainly don't want her to think that way about Democrats. I'm sure most of her friends are liberal and certainly her teachers are. And, and so one of the things I'm trying to sort of model for her is this idea that politicizing things is stupid. And yeah. so I was kind of grateful for the for the take a knee thing, because I could be very honest with her and just expressing my basic disgust and contempt for the entire controversy, because it was, you know, both it was both sort of red meat for people to sell them that Trump is doing something when he's not. And it was also idiotic for the people to take a knee and disrespectful to the flag. I mean, I'm with Trump on the on the fundamental merits of it. I just thought the controversy was dumb. And the takeaway is just you shouldn't be saying politics about everything. You know, that'll come, you know, and that's fine. We talked through. But I don't know how – and I, I think I want to make one of the themes of this thing is ask, you know, people I respect, you know, just when you're how do you talk about politics about. with your kids? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm waiting. Well, yeah, I should have brought it up with Yuval because he's smart. Um, yeah, you should. But, and he's, he is always right. Uh, or actually, you said Ramesh is the guy who had the line. It wasn't Ramesh's line. I don't think I'm always right, but I always think I'm right. Um, yeah. I mean, that's that, that's the that's the right distinction, isn't it? Right? Like humility is. I would never possibly think I'm always right, but in every particular case, I must think that I'm right about this thing, or I wouldn't think that thing. But I think we rank order how important a lot of those views are right. to us. And so when you say right. you're a conservative and you want your kid to be a conservative, most of that stuff is about you know human dignity and human potential and community and work and vocation and neighborhood and policy preferences. Like there are some things that are really, really important and we ought to prioritize those. And then there are just a million other things that the federal government's trying to do. And it's run through an agency of people who aren't often competent to run a bait shop. And they're trying to do priority 307 when they haven't figured out priority two. And so there, I'm not talking about that stuff with my kids because it seems to be just too small for a 13 and a 16 year old who are trying to discover the good, the true and the beautiful and restrain their passions and not wreck the car. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so you have a kid who's driving. That's terrifying. Oh, both of them. We, in Nebraska, you know, you can drive when you're 14. Um, you have to live five miles from school, but everybody does. So my, my 16 year old daughter, she's what, 16 and three months now. She's been driving for almost two and a half years. You get your learner's permit for a school permit like a month or two before you turn 14. So she's two and a half years into driving, and my other one is just starting. It's uh, it's horrifying and great. Yeah, I mean, this is something where I know I sound like one of these coastal elites, but I'll be glad for my kid to use Uber for a while longer. Um, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's just me. My teacher, um, hit the, my, my, my 16-year-old hit the piano teacher's car in the driveway and did $1,700 damage in the driveway. Nice. Nice. And $1,700 damage in Nebraska, that goes away. And this was a car that was only worth like (laughs) $1,900. So do we get tax reform? Uh, I I had been at slightly better than 50-50 that betting that we would get moderate tax reform. And we're not going to get comprehensive tax reform. This is not 1986 where we're going to be able to actually do all the fundamental stuff. You need to be aiming for 70% issues to, to strip out all the cronyist crap in the code. We should be broadening the base and lowering the rates and carving out lots of the loopholes and special exemptions. But if you're going to do that, you'd be doing it on a regular legislative pathway of trying to get 60 votes. And we're trying to do it by reconciliation. So I'd say I had been at 50-50 that we were going to get slightly better than 50-50 that we'd get modest tax reform done, um, moderately important, some real stuff that could help stimulate the economy. But I thought the biggest risk to that falling apart was politicians lying and exaggerating and pretending this was going to be eschatological and bring about heaven on earth. We were doing big and comprehensive when we were really doing moderate. And then, you know, it'd fall apart under those false promises. Now I think there's a new risk 
that the president may just alienate core pieces of the coalition, so the math just becomes impossible to get to 50 or 51. I, I want to do tax reform. I'm working hard on it, wanting to see that ball advance. But when the president attacks sort of people who are teetering, it makes it a lot harder to get 50, 51 votes. You just don't see the genius behind the plan. It's, it's four-dimensional chess, dude. Um, here, here's, here's a question. I, I, I've been noodling for a little while. Um, so if you were like going to look, if you looked at like the Trump coalition, the Trump platform, the Trump messaging from when he was elected, and you thought about what kind of tax reform would make sense to reward the people who bought into his message, um, why wouldn't you just screw doing almost anything with the income tax, maybe even raise it, but do a, take a big bite out of payroll taxes? Because those are the taxes that most of his, you know, sort of core base voters pay and feel. And they kind of, I think on the merits, you could say that they deserve a payroll tax cut, right? I mean, I think you still do something about the corporate tax rate because people understand we elected this business guy and we're trying to get the economy moving and we pay this really high, you know, corporate tax rate. But why wouldn't you sort of give the people... Um, you say you're for the middle class and the lower middle class and, you know, the people have been left behind. Those are the people who, who pay very little, comparatively speaking, income tax and a lot of payroll taxes. And it's a fiction that those things are funding our entitlements anyway. So why wouldn't you just go at those and leave income taxes alone in the first place? Well, it's the same between two things. Why would I or why would he? So why would he? I think there's an argument for what you're saying because it would align with a lot of his messaging. Um, but, it, you know, w when we actually have these discussions with him, I mean, he doesn't have much interest in the policy detail, obviously. So that, that I don't know saying? how he makes. I don't know what, how he makes decisions about which pieces to foreground. But from where I sit, that what's, what's dangerous about that is, as you said, you know, the fiction that these are funding actual entitlements. But the reality is we are stealing from the next generation. Like we are spending transfer payments on people today who are older and wealthier, and we're transferring money from people who are going to be slightly poorer, the median of the electorate, and in future generations. We're just taking money out of the future and spending it now. And payroll taxes were supposed to be part of the claim that these were, you know, a, a tub on its own bottom kind of honest math, and it's totally BS math. And so if you just dive into payroll taxes and cut them there, um, I, I think one of the things that happens is you end up in a world where having a, the honest next conversation about entitlement reform becomes even less probable. Now, the truth is, I mean, it looks like the American political system decided in this last cycle that Democrats had long ago given up on any honesty about entitlement overpromising, but Republicans, I thought, at a voter base level, still cared about being honest there. And I think what we learned in the election when you had 17 candidates and 15 Republicans wanted to tell the truth about it, and Huckabee and, and the now president were the only two who were indifferent to telling the truth about the math, and the voters just didn't care. I think we're headed toward a world where you have catastrophe as the way that you first talk about entitlements in a truthful way. But for me, it's, it would be dangerous to just say, let's cut the payroll taxes in a way that doesn't require any honesty about the overpromise that we're doing. We violated a bunch of rules. We, we, we were going to not let this go policy nerdy often and early. And I think you got, you got listeners right now, their ears are bleeding. That's probably true. But uh, I, I, I tried to get, you know, into raising families and talking to raising your kids. And you wanted to talk about, you know, the, the, the $15 minimum wage, you know, I mean, it's, you're not quite like, you know, an, a, a talking Al Gore doll where he talks about carbon tax credits, you know, um, when he gets really drunk. Um, but um, uh, you imagine Al Gore at a party. Uh. <laughs> There was a great. Oh, really? I, I invented the internet twice. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a great Simpsons where Bart and Milhouse and the kids uh, steal a car and they drive to the abandoned um, World's Fairgrounds and they find an Al Gore doll that when you pull the string in it back it talks and all it says is this is what I sound like when I talk when you pull the string. <laughs> I thought was really funny. All right, well, I got I got I got very little else to to talk to you about. I mean, if you're, since you're in wonk mode, and uh, but uh, you know, it's yeah. great to have you back. Thanks, thanks for the invitation to wonk it out with you. Uh, we are uh, 
you're ramping up for big football this weekend, so I know that's that being hard of your life. So come and I'll fling a run at you. Nebraska's playing Ohio State on Saturday night, and I uh, I often do vending in the stands. So if you come, I'll, I'll give you free Russian-German food in the stadium. That would be very exciting. Yeah, I mean, tailgating? Oh, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I, I work in a lot of these games, too. So, uh, yeah. the you know, we get 95 So the tailgating is not that meaningful because you can't go to work blottoed, right? I mean, you can't, like... That's a, it would be a bad idea for me to be vending, you know, Russian uh, doughy uh, sausage and onion and pepper sandwiches. Completely hammered. I, I think my... Yeah, you don't, you don't want a VUI, right? Vending under the influence? Yeah. <laughs> It's a, it's a little known statute, but it's an important state law in our parts. <laughs> All right, man. Uh, right. It's great to talk to you. And uh, next time we'll really, you know, again, I apologize for this phone stuff. It's just, uh, I don't know how it sounds. Well, I'm sure the listeners will let us know. And uh, you, mainly for your technical skills. That's, that's why that's, people that's true. Jeff Goldberg. Well, and, and, and so, I'm sorry? No, I was, uh, I, I knew you were about to hang up on me, so I was just saying peace. Oh, I, I, so it's this, this sort of high school thing. You go first. No, you go first. All right, man. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> Bye. 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 All right. So that was another exciting, well, it was another edition of uh, The Remnant with this guy. I'm pointing my thumbs towards me. And um, thanks for coming. Thanks again to Senator Sass. Thanks to Michael and Jack for something. And uh, you're welcome. Tune in next week or whenever this next one comes out. And uh, I apologize for anything that I should be apologizing for, but I'm not sure what that would be. See you next week.